Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefano Bini, and I will be your host for this new season, bringing you the best talks from the DocSF Experience 21. After our previous discussion with Professor Wachter, who was our keynote, we continue to delve into the patient experience with two back-to-back presentations and a combined Q&A, so we apologize it's a little bit long. First, we heard about the next frontier, as envisioned by a company called Soul Machines out of New Zealand. They have looked at a huge deficit of clinical providers compared to the future needs of our planet and decided that this need will need to be filled by virtual humans. We simply won't be able to create enough real humans to fill the need. But what is a virtual human? And how will these virtual humans interface with real humans? Towards that end, we had an amazing experience where we listened to a dramatization of what care could look like in the virtual human populated future. And to follow, we had a terrific presentation from Jessica Schull from the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. What are digital therapeutics anyway? How do they interface with clinical care? How are they paid for? And what science backs them? Why does the FDA approve them? Jessica will clarify all of that for us. So please join Jessica and Erica on the DocSF 21 virtual stage. Hello, I'm Erica Lloyd from Soul Machines, and with my colleague Shantanu, we're here today to talk about revolutionizing healthcare experiences with digital people. We make astonishing digital people, and we look forward to sharing their applications in healthcare. And it's no underestimation to say right now that healthcare globally is in crisis. You would know yourselves from your work as physicians and healthcare specialists globally that there's this sort of open jaws between the demand that of people who need healthcare services and the infrastructure and the technology and the time and the budgets to meet that demand. And those jaws are widening on a daily basis. We know that there's a shortage of healthcare workers and there's a shortage of budgets and there's a shortage of time and ability to meet not just the needs that have been exposed in the pandemic, but everyday preventable diseases and every and and the explosion, if you like, in uh, mental unwellness. So, what I want some of the ways in which technology is trying to help solve this healthcare epidemic. One idea is this idea around a chatbot. Many of you may have heard uh, this term chatbot and this concept of chatbot being thrown around over the past years. And so, very basically, what is a chatbot? A chatbot is this technology that essentially takes a user's inquiry, analyzes it tries to understand the meaning of that language, and then either through human authoring or human dialogue management provides a response back to that end user. And so you might see chatbots on all of these different websites you know, where you can ask someone for help, where you can ask the hours of operations, where you might be able to ask a certain question about maybe why is my skin look red today? And chatbots have been functional, they've been great, and they've really helped you know, certain people and in certain industries do well in answering these FAQ questions they don't really provide that empathy or that interaction that a lot of patients and providers are looking for in terms of creating a empathetic interaction. And we're starting to see new innovations targeted towards the healthcare space. Uh, You're seeing avatars being used to create this more lifelike interaction. You're seeing other technologies like empathy and voice and robots being used to try to create this engagement Uh, between patients and providers, patients and doctors and hospital systems 
to make it more authentic, but it still hasn't really gone mainstream yet. I think there are a lot of studies happening today that showcase that there are chatbots happening, that patients are being tried. And actually, as a result of COVID-19, quite a few chatbots were launched to support uh, information and reduce misinformation around COVID-19 and healthcare procedures. But what we believe and what we're seeing as potentially the next generation is a combination of what's been happening to date with a combination of other technologies coming together to provide that empathetic interaction. And so if you remember what I spoke about before, which is this natural language query FAQ, imagine marrying that with other technologies to create a more empathetic digital person. So not only can you talk to it through your texting, but it can start to see you through its computer screen, similar to a video cam that you and I are doing right now. It can hear what you're saying. It can start to feel your emotions through the camera and through the tone, and it can then behave accordingly um, as you would through a video camera. And I think this is becoming even more important today as the world moves online. You know, a year ago today, it was a challenge to say, are people willing to do uh, video conferences at home? I know in the healthcare industry, that's still relatively new, but the idea of having telemedicine and video conferencing calls is here to stay. And how do you help create that experience um, at home using these technologies? And so at Soul Machines, we are seeing this combination of technologies and we're seeing this throughout the industry as it comes together. And, and part of that is what we call a digital brain. Many of you might appreciate the anatomy analogy here uh, when we think about a brain in, in the healthcare setting, but we do think about a system of being able to understand, um, react accordingly, and then process the information as an output. Great. So you can see that there's a lot of power or there can be a lot of power when you bring these technologies together. And so to illuminate that, I want to share with you a video of a platform we've created called BabyX that brings all these great technologies together to show the art of the possible. This is BabyX. She's one of the most advanced brain simulations in the world, and she's enjoying playing a peekaboo game with me. So what is BabyX? It's a virtual infant simulation. It's trying to create the elements which put together aspects of what makes something lifelike. Baby X isn't an animation. She's a virtual human, and all of the behaviours are generated by neural networks. She watches and listens to what I do and makes her own decisions in real time about how to respond. We can see that Baby X is looking at the spider and there's no reaction but I'm now going to tell her it's something she should be scared of. Scary spider! The spider now provokes a clear fear response. The sight of the spider triggers specific parts of her brain. Her amygdala initiates a cascade of reactions which send chemicals into her system, generating the physical and emotional feelings of fear. When we take the spider away, she calms down. And when we bring it back, we can see she's now scared of it. When Baby X presses the green button, a duck appears. And when she presses the red button, a snake appears. As Baby X continues to press the buttons, her brain begins to form new connections. She wants to see a duck, so she's working out pressing the green button gets her what she wants. This ability to learn sequences and to predict what might be about to happen next is crucial to everything we do. 
We all know that making eye contact is a powerful way to create a sense of connection. There's a chemical in your brain called oxytocin, the hug drug, which also has an amazing effect on how we connect with other people. I'm going to increase her levels of oxytocin and let's see what effect that has. Baby X makes a clear shift to focus on eye contact. We're connecting and she even gives me a smile. Inside Baby X's brain, we can see oxytocin being released. Here it's the greeny blue bits secreted by her pituitary gland. The simple act of connection means she's rewarded with oxytocin, which makes her seek even more connection. And even though I'm interacting with a digital baby, the same thing is happening inside my brain. And beyond that initial platform, which Shantanu pointed out, explained the art of the possible, we've evolved that science project now into more commercial applications for use in healthcare and other domains, where we know that AI is, is able to help transform some of the patient experiences. Um, one thing when thinking about using AI in a medical setting, it's, it's about that there's a sort of paradox to it. The paradox is that the AI, when you add empathy to it, enables the physician to be able to be more empathetic and meet and connect with users where they are as well as glean the benefits, if you like, of scale data that helps in decision-making and multilingual delivery and all of those other sorts of things. Um, the areas where digital people can impact in healthcare, there's a very obvious one in, in costing out in terms of some service delivery. But the biggest impact that we're starting to see is enabling um, clinicians and physicians to be freed up in terms of giving more time to their own patients, um, also to do to support scale population health. One really interesting example of area of work that we've been looking at is in terms of companionship. We know there's an epidemic of loneliness globally of people feeling isolated, and the the pandemic's obviously highlighted that. One research project we did was building a companion for people in order to support their well-being, and um, we called it the Happiness Project. And it was a way for humans to connect in a human-like way through this AI experience. One of the other applications that we've found really resonates is the, the fact that research shows that many people who fear or feel as human beings, we feel judgment. There's a lot of stigma or societal judgment in different types of medical settings. And one of the key application for the AI technology that we're working in is about providing a safe space for people. We've produced a sexual health diagnostic nurse to work in a large hospital people to actually diagnose sexual health and STI situations and help people with their ongoing sexual health. Other areas which are fascinating and emergent for healthcare and AI is a place specialist for children. This, is, uh, this will be a companion, if you like, who will meet a child prior to them entering a hospital environment and familiarise them with the different techniques and equipment and environment and the changes that they'll be going through, give them confidence throughout their process and their time in hospital, keep them company in terms of teaching them breathing techniques to help them relax and understand what's happening to them when blood's being taken, for example. Really importantly, too, that AI digital human can, can come home with them and help them post-operatively as they reconnect back into their home or society or school, maybe changed and maybe reluctant to continue with their physio or their meds 
the idea here is a wraparound service that extends the hospital pre and post care and meets the patient where they are. There's healthline advisors and we're also building um, and doing work in the addiction space. So we're seeing really interesting use cases in terms of digital people in supporting those with addiction and managing preventable diseases. For a second now, I want to talk about our work with the World Health Organization. We're also pleased to introduce Florence, the world and WHO's first ever digital health worker based on artificial intelligence. Now, this is explaining how in the early days of COVID, the World Health Organization was um, challenged in terms of their ability to educate and inform mass global populations on some of the issues that were being faced. This is a, st a standard role for the World Health Organization, but their services were overrun. We connected with them um, and they built and launched their first ever uh, digital health worker. She's called Florence. I'm saying she, but it could be a they or a he. It's irrespective really, but it's more a turn of phrase. And Florence, um, named not after Florence Nightingale, but after one of the teams that worked on this project, does performs three life-saving roles. The first one is to, at the time, do myth-busting around fake news and misinformation in the health system and in the media around COVID and around the vaccine. Second is to raise awareness of the risks associated with tobacco use and COVID. At the time, there was a lot of misinformation and still is around tobacco use and the virus. And there was a fear in terms of a delivery side of hospital systems being overrun, which we've all seen, um, sadly, painfully seen. And the time that those with compromised lungs because of tobacco use would take in hospitals, not to mention their much higher mortality rates to do with COVID-19. The third role, and this is where it gets really interesting when we start thinking about applications in healthcare, is a, an emergent use case. Florence is a high-level quick coach, so a tobacco cessation coach, and connects mass populations to support services and information they may need or want to, want to get access to in order to help um, quit their tobacco habit. And we know from the research associated with this project that of the 1.3 billion tobacco or smokers globally, around 60% of them at any given time would like to stop and get rid of this expensive and bad habit. But less than 30%, 30 to 40% have access to any type of tools or cessation products or knowledge or support. Um, the World Health Organization have taken this really seriously and have put this capability online and in six different languages with a goal of eventually reaching 100 million users. Please meet Florence. Let me show you how this works. Hello. Hi, I'm Florence from the World Health Organization. I want to talk to you about the harms of using tobacco, including smoking and how to quit. Why should I quit smoking? It's more important than ever to quit during this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Smokers are more likely to develop a severe case of COVID-19. Well, I want to quit, but I've tried before and it's just really hard. I'm here to help. I can teach you proven techniques to help you quit, tell you why quitting is a good idea, and more. What would you like to talk about? Well, how do I quit? Congratulations. Being motivated to quit is the first step. The best way to quit is to build a plan. Are you ready to get started? So these are just some of the use cases that we're seeing in 
at the moment, um, the conversations are accelerating as the need for this type of technology is finding a foothold. Now, let's cast forward for a second. Um, as Shantanu talked about earlier, the capability of connecting multiple services and working in more of an ecosystem environment creates this sort of exponential power when we put a digital human AI into that mix. Hello, this is Sol, Dr. Beanie's assistant. Hello, Sol, this is Tyler. I wanted to ask you about my recent surgery. Hey, Tyler, I see that you had a total knee replacement five days ago with Dr. Beanie. I have access to your records and can help you with any questions you may have. Thank you, Sol. First, I don't remember what they found at surgery. You know, I was a little out of it. No worries. I just read your operative report and reviewed the visual records from the operating room. You had exposed bone on both sides of the joint and a torn meniscus. These are both considered excellent indications for surgery so you can expect very good resolution of your symptoms. <laughs> That's great. The live XR was kind of cool. So I'm glad it was correct. Also, the drone delivery with my medications arrived just as I got home, but I can't remember which pills to take or when. Can you tell me? Yes. Of course, the discharge summary states that you should take the pain medicine about 20 minutes before you put on your headset for your virtual reality meditation therapy. And my leg, it's uh, a little swollen as well. Should I be concerned? First, let's run a thermal scan. You have my permission. Thank you. Voice print activation enabled. According to the scan, the skin surface temperature and tensile grade is not suggestive of any complication of a clot in your leg. Okay, well, that's super helpful, Soul. I feel much better. Yes, I can see and hear that. Your anxiety measures dropped seven points. <laughs> that's so cool how you can just see that. Uh, what else did you find? You were a little behind on your knee flexion goals compared to other people your age and gender at this time in their recovery. You only achieved 100 degrees of knee flexion and are not putting enough weight on your operated leg. Well, what do you think I should do about that? I will send your results to Dr. Beanie's office as you might benefit from in-person physical therapy. I can arrange an automated insurance approval for the treatment. Okay, well, that makes sense. You have my permission. In the meantime, what should I do for exercise? Voice print activation enabled. I sent the referral request and was approved. We can review the exercises you should be doing and, if you can put on your rehab sensor shoes, I can help verbally guide your exercises. Well, I like the idea, Soul, but can we do it a little later? Of course. I'll reach out at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. <laughs> You're kidding me, right? I'm supposed to be resting, remember? Okay, fine. How does 9 o'clock sound? That's much better. Great. I scanned your home and see that you have a connected coffee maker. I'll set coffee to brew at 8.45. Well, thank you. Great. So you just witnessed uh, what the future could look like. Uh, when you combine all these technologies together in the AI and healthcare space. And I think a lot of what you see is possible in the short term, and a lot of it will take development in the long term of a combination of a lot of technologies in the ecosystem. But um, I think we can all agree that the future looks bright, looks exciting, and really excited to work with all of you on this journey as we go forward. Uh, so thank you for your time and happy to answer questions live as we go forward. Thank you. All right. And thank you for your time. Um, please reach out if there's any more I could ever help with. Hello. Um, my name is Jessica Schull. I am industry relations for a trade association called the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. And this is a group based in Washington, D.C. Uh, however, I am based 
just outside of Barcelona and head up a lot of the European policy work and awareness um, from this side of the Atlantic. Um, I have a background in digital health. I've been uh, working on virtual surgery devices and uh, with WHO on e-health, different projects around the world um, for a long time. And now with digital therapeutics, we're seeing digital health being applied specifically for patients in the form of therapies. So without further ado, I will present a little bit about the digital therapeutics ecosystem and how that can be defined and where physicians fit in it. Defining the digital therapeutics ecosystem. So we are the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, and our goal is to engage with all parts of the ecosystem um, that we see as being far larger than just the digital health companies, but we're talking about patients, the payers, clinicians, and the regulatory groups, like all uh, stakeholders that are needed and, and party to the way that these products are viewed, adopted, and utilized um, globally. We are an international association. So we're based in the U.S., but we do have now more than 47 members across 15 countries and four continents. And these members range from pharma companies to digital therapeutics companies themselves who are producing products and medical device companies. Oh, and some, sometimes also uh, research institutions and universities. So the main question I think that we want to answer today um, and ensure that it's clear is what is a digital therapeutic? So you can look for a graphic, this sort of concentric circles here, the digital health industry categorization that we developed in conjunction with Health Excel and, and the Digital Medicine Society. Um, this was meant to just illustrate that you know, digital health is all things, all encompassing things that are electronic patient records, telemedicine, all kinds of very useful things, but are not based on clinical evidence. Um, whereas more concentrically, you have digital medicine, um, which can be things like digital diagnostics. And this can be anything from a, a cell phone that takes a picture of a skin blemish to see whether it's a, a potential skin cancer or yeah, digital biomarkers. And then more centrally is digital therapeutics. And there are very few products which are actually digital therapeutics. We're not talking about apps. We're not talking about just trackers or wellness products. These are very regulated products that take years to develop because they should have a randomized control trial behind them, um, which produces the clinical evidence. And then once they are on the market, they actually do produce real world outcomes. You can actually track and see what a patient, how they're doing. The physician can see the outcomes and what adjustments need to be made. And so there's, it's an ongoing process. And I'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's also post-market surveillance required, especially um, on the European side. So on the left side of the slide, you'll see just a basic definition that you know, we as the Digital Therapeutics Alliance do say that these products, digital therapeutics, deliver medical interventions directly to patients using evidence-based, clinically evaluated software to treat, manage, and prevent a broad spectrum of diseases and disorders. So I'll give a couple of examples later, and you are welcome to go to our website to learn more about the different products and our ecosystem. So just to define a little bit more the ecosystem, on the one end you have, um, and these are all digital health products, but on the left side are enterprise systems and support. So as I mentioned, this would be you know, clinical trial management tools, predictive analytics, sort of like the big health idea, and clinician services and support. This is more um, about you know, electronic medical records and telehealth. 
Um, and then as you move toward the right, it becomes more specifically patient facing and more regulated in a sense, because on the very right hand side, you have digital therapeutics and therapeutic interventions, which can include things like digital therapeutics and also non-digital therapeutics, but, but they're still medical devices, things like, and they're connected, they can be connected like an insulin pump or an artificial pancreas, that kind of thing. So this also illustrates the, the fact that there are so many products out there now that we understand it's difficult for physicians to under, you know, to sort of filter through what's needed, what makes sense, what has been approved, and what will actually bring better care to their patients. And so that's where we are trying to give standards to the industry to ensure that regulatory requirements and the highest standards of clinical evidence are provided. This is <laughs> the definition, once again, we always like to underline this, but this is just a point to point out that in Europe, because of the medical device regulation, it's been a, a very sort of interesting time. And because digital therapeutics are regulated as medical devices in the EU, and actually still the UK right now, there's a new medical device regulation, which is very specific and brings a high level of scrutiny um, to these products. And there's, you can find more about that under yeah, MDR. So when we talk about digital therapeutics, we were not trying to isolate, you know, saying that this is a sort of class of, of new class of therapies on its own. We understand that these kinds of products can work in conjunction with other things like uh, health products and the electronic medical records, as well as sensors and telehealth. In fact, we have collaborated with telehealth companies and connected the watch companies to show how this can be a continuum for monitoring and treating patients. So here we come to DTX examples. These are on our website, actually. And if you'd like to see more examples, there are a few more very detailed examples of digital therapeutic products. But these are two, which I thought might apply to this audience. Here we have Blue Star by WellDoc, which is for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And so there have been 45 different peer-reviewed clinical publications on this product showing that patients who use the software, and it's the software has been what they're trialing. Yes, of course, the patients need insulin or metformin or what have you, but it is the difference. The difference in the, the trial groups is the software, the Blue Star program. And those patients experienced a drop uh, in HbA1c of 1.7 to 2 points on average, which is pretty good, <laughs> frankly. So you can read more about this on our website and yeah, just the trials as well um, can be seen. And the second one I want to mention is Kaya Health by Kaya. And this is one for nonspecific lower back pain. So it's a pretty common condition for a lot of people. Um, I've actually used this DTX myself and it does, it does help. I can say it helped me, but the target population is for people with chronic low back pain over the age of 18. And they have trials that demonstrate Kaya users statistically have a significant lower pain level after 12 weeks than they would with traditional therapy coupled with online education. And so now these are two examples. There are many more, but just to say that we don't believe that these kinds of things replace physician intervention by any means. This has to be used in conjunction with a protocol, with what the patient needs. And it's not for every patient, even though you know, it was sort of assumed that because these are digital tools, the patients would have to be younger, but that's also not quite the case. Um, we've seen that yeah, populations vary, but patients with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, and they're typically older, they do well with digital therapeutics as well. 
So it, it very much depends on the engagement and how the onboarding is done and so forth. But digital therapeutics can be um, applied for many different uh, disease states and, and age groups. We require of the industry that each product meet these 10 requirements. And you know, we're not a certifying body, but we do say that, of course, point one is that the products must prevent, manage, or treat a medical disorder or disease. The medical intervention must be driven by software. That's point two. They must incorporate manufacture and quality best practices. So these are the 10 guidelines that we ask all of the industry to adhere to. And I think number eight is one of the most important because you know, review, being reviewed and cleared or approved by regulatory bodies as required to support the product claims of risk, efficacy, and intended use is highly important. And so, you know, I work with countries all over the world, and one of their first questions is, well, how do you know that it's not just, you know, some, some thing that you can download and that it, it might actually harm someone? Well, this is precisely what we're trying to do is get every DTX out there and, you know, of the two or 300 products that exist, that's a big filter. Because if you go, you know, on the iTunes store or in, in Google Play, whatnot, you can see, I think it's upwards of 300,000, what they call health, you know, between quotes, health apps. But very few, like I'm saying, 200 to 300 of those are actually digital therapeutics. In uh, Europe, digital therapeutics, as I mentioned, are regulated as medical devices. There is a new medical device regulation, MDR, which goes into effect in May of this year. It was delayed by one year uh, due to COVID, but now it's, it's definitely happening. And all DTX products, therefore, must receive a CE mark, which is the Conformité Européenne, I don't speak French well, but qualified uh, through a notified body. And these notified bodies are independent organizations, and they do a review and assign an approval, like assign a CE mark to products. And the products are classified as either class one, 2A, 2B, or possibly even 3, depending on their risk class. And depending on the risk class, there is a good deal of, as I mentioned, post-market follow-up. So for adverse events, for risk management, for cybersecurity, all of these things. And patient privacy is a big one. So these CE-marked DTX products are in use, actually, in France, Germany, Sweden, Finland, Belgium, and the UK. And this is through the national systems. So they're in use in many more countries through private insurance or, or just you know, out-of-pocket payment. But these countries have actually come up with a framework and a way to pay for digital therapeutic products nationally. So it's really interesting to see what the requirements are for entering a, a country's national health system and also how they're adopted. So on the other side of the Atlantic in the U.S., Digital therapeutics are subject um, to applicable regulatory requirements of the FDA. So in general, the U.S. relies on the SAMD framework, which is software as a medical device. And that is a framework which is monitored and has working groups with the IMDRF. And so that's what we uh, adhere to as well for the, for the U.S. work. There is, like in the U.S., there, there was, for instance, this emergency use authorization uh, during the pandemic which allowed you know, certain, it was a certain allowance for certain mental health digital therapeutics. Um, and right now that is uh, still in use, but um, yeah. So additions are made during, you know, for special circumstances by the FDA. DTX products for many disease states are in use across the US through healthcare systems, through private insurance companies, through some employers, through some, even some universities offer it to all of their staff, for instance. It just depends on the product and, and the system. 
yeah, there is no one national network, obviously, for the U.S. So it's it's a bit, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very large market. So they're in use in every state in the union, but there's a variety. Adoption rates vary. I can't give precise numbers of the increase, you know, from last year to now or, or whatnot, but um, there are products um, that have, you know, upwards of 100,000 users. So it's a growing market, but already many products are very well um, established. And the costs vary. So it depends on what disease state we're talking about, what the standard of care is, the cost of that standard of care, how much cost savings come from, you know, having done these health economic outcome studies and what the agreements are. So I, yeah, I don't have a lot of detail on that, but we're not talking about, you know, 199 downloads, that kind of thing. So I know um, in Europe, many digital therapeutics are now being reimbursed in Germany. I mean, it was thought, well, maybe there'd be a lot less expensive because, you know, German European healthcare is not as expensive, but prices have been pretty significant uh, for the industry. So so from 100 to 400 euros per month, which is, yeah, I think worth if you get the outcomes that are intended. And obviously it was worth it to the German government. <laughs> so. All right, so future trends. It's interesting because you know, we've not, we're still in this global pandemic. Um, it's hopefully ending soon, but I think it brought to the forefront of many people's minds that digital health is important, that you can monitor patients at home, that you can see outcomes, that you can actually treat without having to be in a doctor's office. And we're hoping that along with telemedicine, digital therapeutics are also recognized as valuable. And even beyond the pandemic, because in many countries and even in the U.S., there may not be you know, enough time in a, doc a doctor's day to do everything they could for every patient, but a digital therapeutic is with you every day. And so it serves, you know, sort of as an additional tool um, to really provide the best care possible. We're seeing that one of the keys for adoption is physician awareness. So we're very glad to be speaking with you today, just so that physicians are aware that these products exist, that they are highly regulated and do provide clinical evidence. And, you know, what we'd like to do is understand, you know, how we you know, can explain how these products get involved into a physician's typical workday. So we're actually working on uh, CME courses and building a strategy to communicate with physicians better because we need physician groups to, to understand and, and sort of, we'd like to demystify digital therapeutics for all kinds of physicians and nurses and physiotherapists yeah, and all caregivers, really. Regulator awareness is also key. Notified bodies and the FDA, they've both had to really hire on new competencies, like with you know, cybersecurity experts and privacy law experts, that kind of thing, to ensure that they know what they're assessing and that and they know when a product has met those requirements. And that wasn't the case, you know, even three years ago, I think. So they've really had to up their game. And we know that trust is imperative. Um, and we advocate always for trustworthy regulation and rigorous scientific evidence. Um, I think that as far as future trends, what we're going to see is more acceptance of remote monitoring. And that doesn't have to be just, you know, a video call and you can see what a patient's doing, which is telemedicine, but DTX actually, because if you have a digital therapeutic in a mobile phone and a patient is at home, whatever happens with, with the digital therapeutic, it's part of the record of what they've done for their care. And that can be delivered to physicians via, you know, with a once a month kind of summary, or it can be part of the EHR. I mean, so it can be part of the care continuum in general, um, which we see that you know, patients deserve the option to use. 
And it's like I mentioned, not for every condition, but for many, especially for instance, respiratory conditions, when we're in the middle of a respiratory viral pandemic, it made a lot of sense. For rehabilitation and physiotherapy, that is an option now. And it, you know, even for this group, you know, it might be interesting to look into that. Areas that we see a lot of growth are in mental health. So with panic disorder, anxiety, depression, with our many cognitive behavioral therapy-based digital therapeutics, uh, which address those conditions for CNS diseases, for pain management, including fibromyalgia and migraine, for instance, with endocrinology of diabetes and the sort of metabolic diseases, and geriatric medicine as well, especially because you know, we're all, all populations are growing older and many people are home alone and you know, having a way to keep the mind going and, and keep you know, certain diseases in check is, is probably of value. And there's you know, gastroenterology. And so it, the list goes on. I put you know, three dots there. But um, in general, there's a lot happening in the industry. And we're, we're glad to have connected with your group. So this is my name and email. If there are questions, I suppose that's the best way to get in touch. That's it. Thank you. Oh, wow. I am so glad that we actually have this moment to be together live and bringing the two of you guys together to talk a lot more about avatars, chatbots, digital therapeutics, digital people. And so joining me right now, I have Shantanu um, Agarwal with Soul Machines. And what part of the world are you joining us from today? It's not New Zealand today, right? Today's uh, New York. Yeah. And we also have Jess Scholl. She's with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. And today she is joining us as the Digital Therapeutics Ninja. (laughs) (laughs) Love, I was going to say, love that you are leading by example and reminding us that even while you're vaccinated, we still need those face masks. So Jess, where are you joining us from today? I am in Louisville, Kentucky. Good. I was going to say, I guess we're getting ready for the Derby. Is that part of it? We are. Yeah. So it's it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the hat fashion and now we have the face mask fashion. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into this whole concept around digital, digital therapeutics chatbots, the the digital people, I think everybody watching both of these presentations are in awe. I think sometimes people are a little bit intimidated and, you know, it's kind of that cool, freaky, you know, I think that that's kind of where we, where we come down with this. And the way Erica set this up with Soul Machines, I think is really an important starting point, which is healthcare is stretched to its absolute limits. And that was before the pandemic, right guys? Right. No. Um, so totally. those, yeah. the, the trends that are driving that we have an aging population who are living longer, requiring more care, um, becoming more isolated and lonely. And at the same time, we have a healthcare workforce that is also aging and we are losing them in numbers and we're also losing their expertise as well as then the pandemic hits. And we've seen an increase in no. being overwhelmed and, and the, the mental health issues within our own healthcare practitioners, our healthcare workforce. So the great thing about this moment, we are all in the same place of mentally, like this has just been really overwhelming. And I wanted to start with you, Shantanu, from the standpoint of as you're building the digital humans, one of the things that your team really talks about is compassion. And we don't necessarily think of a digital human as you know, the source for compassion. Can you say more about like, how does a digital, how does somebody that's not human or, you know, or somebody that's digital, I shouldn't say not human. How does somebody who's digital 
how do they become our vessels for compassion? Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting to think about compassion and empathy. I think us humans can get empathy and compassion from a variety of sources, humans and non-humans. Um, if you think of the example of your favorite pet, like a dog, a lot of folks mm-hmm. get happiness just from coming home and getting their dog to say hi to them or being able to pet them. So we're able to get empathy and compassion from a variety of means. And I think what, what we do with digital people is we take that familiar face, we take that familiar behaviors that we've all grown up with. You know, from childhood, we've seen our, our parents' faces, we've seen our friends' compassion, and then use that as an effort to convey information in a way that allows folks to feel like they're being heard and understood. It's this idea of being able to connect and then talk through different information that way. Um, I think one thing, just leading back to what you described in the beginning around just healthcare burnout, healthcare worker burnout, is this idea of compassion is takes energy from all of us to give and provide. And at some point, there might be a fatigue over a long term, right? So, you know, everyone is really excited to give, let's see, vaccines in the early days, and now everyone's just, you know, in their efficiency mode. But everyone's really excited to go there. And yeah. I think adding this element of, you know, a digital person in this case can have that sustained compassion, you know, continuously, right? It can be there for you whenever uh, you need it, anytime, any place. Uh, with that cheerful attitude that's required to make you feel better or have that empathetic interaction when certain things are going that way. So we're able to use technology to scale up that empathetic interaction that all of us need. And frankly, you know, as a patient or someone on the other side of, of all this, when I go to the doctor's office, sometimes I'm kind of anxious about what's going on. And you know, doctors have these really tight schedules. So if you're able to create an experience that enables me to feel comfortable, I think it could potentially... I improve the whole healthcare delivery system. Yeah. And Jessica, one of the things that I am curious about with the digital therapeutic, and one of the things that I think we're hopeful about is when we talked about this healthcare crisis with a growing demand and then a shrinking supply of people to supply that, do the digital therapeutics, do they actually help to solve this gap between the ability to supply and the demand? Yeah. Yes. I mean, in short, yes. So I, I wanted to give an example of a digital therapeutic for uh, treating patients with diabetes because you think about the numbers, they're huge. You can think about it in terms of millions. And, you know, you can't always come in. Doctors don't have time to see a patient every day, certainly. And seeing a patient every six months is obviously not as effective to control HbA1c. And so there are products, um, there are digital therapeutics developed, which currently can manage millions of patients on a daily, hourly basis, their, their insulin dosing without the daily intervention of a physician. And so, you know, you think of this, this is, this is extending the reach of physicians, not replacing, but very much improving patient outcomes at a level of attention that they just can't provide and they shouldn't have to. I think you bring up a great point, which is there are certain things that can that don't need a physician or don't need someone to monitor on every basis. And this idea of being able to, this idea that technology can free up, augment, enable care along the way is a really important concept, right? Whether it's through digital therapeutics or whether it's through digital people, a combination of both. The idea that you can, the patient can feel like they're being taken care for and getting the right information without relying or waiting on a specific individual to be there, if if not needed allows everyone to have a better experience. Right. I wanted to add too, because when I first started with digital therapeutics four years ago, we heard from physicians in Europe primarily, I I work there primarily, but saying, oh, but my patients, they really want to come in and it's part of their therapy to just talk to me. (laughs) And so regardless of the treatment they're actually getting, it's just that psychotherapy sort of, you know, it helps especially older patients. 
And I think something about with Soul Machines, I think that is precisely what you're getting. I mean, I talk to my virtual assistant at home all the time. It's like, tell me a joke, you know, and they, so there's that kind of interaction, which is very real now, which, you know, I think would, will definitely play a part in breaking the barrier, you know, the sort of first use cases in bigger populations, those kinds of products. So one of the things that I think is really exciting about both of the points that you're making is we tend to have these conversations in a very physician-centered way. And so I am speaking on behalf of the 20 million nurses around the globe. The great thing about these types of therapeutics, and particularly in the digital therapeutics, is that it actually broadens our prescriber base. So when you think about the vast majority of people in their lifetime across this world, they will never see a physician. You know, the highest level of, uh, of a licensed trained professional in the healthcare space will be a nurse and sometimes even a community healthcare worker or a midwife. So these tools, you know, we, by having them um, be things that are regulated in a, they're regulated, but regulated in a different way with a different safety profile, we actually are tapping into pharmacists and social workers I'm curious if there are other ways that you've seen where the prescriber base, the digital aspect of this, how that's helping to expand our supply of people being able to actually provide a recommendation and prescribe care. I'll start and then I'll pass the microphone. But I just wanted to say like these products are actually regulated in ways which are just like all medical devices. I mean, if they hit a risk class, which is required for you know FDA approval or so forth, you know, they all are CE marked for Europe as medical devices. So all that, that kind of regulation is very recognized. But that said, the prescription models vary. So in some cases, it can be um, education officials who are, are, you know, dispensing, let's say, because for ADHD, it's not the same across countries of who actually takes care of those kinds of patients and so, or for students. <laughs> yeah, so, and public, public health prescriptions, much the way vaccines are you know, that's a public health prescription. You don't have to go to one specific provider. It's offered by the national system. And so and there are actually digital therapeutics who are offered that, that, which are offered that way. If it's in the UK, there is one clinical commissioning group in London. They offer a digital therapeutic to all of that population. Whoever wants it, it's yours. Right. And so, yeah, uh-huh. continue your no, thoughts. And I take another step further, right? Which is once you get prescribed, then people have questions about what do I do or how much should I take? Or I'm unclear that this is happening. So then you start having this backend system of, of burden of asking questions of, am I doing the right thing? Is my prescription needs to be refilled? Just the logistics of being able to fulfill that prescription, being able to understand that. And if you're able to use digital therapeutics and digital people to help navigate and manage that, it helps reduce the burden. Again, augment the prescribers to be able to free up to do more of that actual yeah. diagnosis and triaging, which is where the creativity and the education is needed. Whereas the logistics and handling, if you can use technology to augment that, that in itself can free up our current prescriber base to be able to do more effective work. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I've been really excited about to share with a much broader audience is really peer-to-peer prescribing. I mean, when we think about where people are going for their information, they're going to Instagram, they're going to Facebook, and they're checking in with their peers. So if they've found something that, you know, you've got, say, a 54-year-old woman who's like got an elderly mother somewhere who's lonely, And she's checking in with her friends and her friends are saying, oh, there's this really great social uh, robot that you can be using or digital humans. I think that the digital therapeutics, it opens up a whole new way of recommendations, not necessarily prescribing, but that awareness building. And Shantanu, one of the things that was so fun watching the dramatization of how a digital human can help us 
coordinate care better. The example of our post-op patient who wanted to better understand, like, am I doing my physical therapy right? Who do I need to see? I think my favorite part in that dramatization is when the digital human makes an appointment for them. And they say, hang on a second here. I'm supposed to be resting. And negotiate (laughs) the digital human to get a time that actually is far more comfortable and personalized. So that really, that's a dramatization. It's showing what is possible. But I, I wonder if you could speak to from the standpoint of how that actually changes the user interface, the whole interaction so that we're integrating across the care and it really does streamline all of those different activities that are involved within getting the outcome that you want across a system that's entirely distributed. Yeah, I think you're touching on, on this point of like, right now the whole system is really fragmented, right? I have to call a doctor here. I have to look up my chart here. I have to go call my friend to ask him about this. If there's one way to centralize or make it convenient such that you have this you know, familiar, empathetic interaction, then you can then navigate the health... That can help you navigate the healthcare system. I think there's a lot of potential and opportunity there. I know we get this already with our other places like our banking systems or our social media. You know where we log into. We have... You mentioned Instagram, we go on our apps, we get information that way. It's a very convenient customer experience idea or user experience and user interface. Why can't we have that in the healthcare field? And I think a lot of people recognize that. And part of these discussions and just general areas, we're going to be able to evolve through that. And through that dramatization, through the video from earlier today, you got to see a patient, a post-op patient, be able to you know, get a thermal scan, understand their temperatures, get their anxiety checked, be able to schedule, reschedule, ask questions about their medication, ask questions about them, you know, what's going on. And you thought you saw them feel more comfortable at the end of their results. And part of that is this other concept that we like to talk about, which is trust. Yeah. Getting trust is super important in this space, especially in healthcare, because obviously there's a lot in hand and the failure to getting it wrong. Yeah. Risk of failure is high. Right. And so (laughs) in that space, creating a trusting system takes a little bit more time, but it's really powerful when you can do that because you're able to offload information and and be able to create that way. One other data point I wanted to share is that what we've seen is throughout technology and throughout chatbots and through digital people, sometimes people are more willing to open up to a digital character or digital bot more so than a human. And part of that is this idea of judgment. Stigma, shame. Stigma, shame, all that. Whereas if you know, hey, listen, I'm here to help you, but I'm not here to judge you and tell me what you want. You know, that's, that's that trust that signal only comes when you have your best friend or your, your people that you yeah. trust. Technology can support more information that might actually help with a better all care as well. So this idea of having a front end experience and now that we're getting used to this, I mean, you look at us right now, we're doing a virtual conference from all over the world. We're talking through our video cameras. There's, you know, like I said in the video, a year ago, people were, were not sure if they were turning on the video cameras. You know, things changed so quickly. And here we are. And you can now see that future becoming even more reality sooner because of this advancements in technology and now the ability to create that connection. Yeah. the um, I'm glad you brought up that, that piece around trust because it has been this really interesting data point that we find people are more willing to give highly sensitive personal data to a device, a chatbot, you know, something that they... I, I think what's happening is that the way that response has been programmed there is a supportive nature. There is not an eye roll. There's there's not a sigh. But I'm curious when you're developing the digital humans, I mean, you you demonstrated baby X and those were natural responses that the neural connections happen. What is it like when you are creating the digital humans and trying to really capture an honest, authentic human reaction 
that also sometimes has a degree of snark in it that makes it very real so that you don't feel like you're just chatting to this program thing. It's like, you know, what is the balance between getting the best of human nature that is still authentic, but then also maybe we program out those things where, you know, me taking care of um, somebody who's trying to quit smoking and this is the thousandth patient that I've taken care of. And maybe my energy and compassion fatigue, you know, my compassion is kind of fatiguing. How do you program that in so that the best of us is there all the time and program out those things that maybe we wish we had done a little bit differently? Yeah, I think with any technologies, this is hard. I mean, us humans don't get it right. I mean, a lot of us don't have great EQ. I'm not, you know, everyone has this way of misjudging people. So it's, it's a hard thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think overall, the idea of creating trust is the most important thing. And if we get it wrong or if we get slightly misread, if the idea is that you can continue and readjust. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think any system will get it 100%. In fact, if anyone claims they will, I, I would be very cautious of those claims. But the idea is the total net, the net effect of it, which is I'm here to hear I'm listening to you. Maybe I didn't really get the fact that you're being sarcastic or snarky with me, but you say it again and I kind of recover that way. I mean, I think that's what we need. I think that's what these systems will enable, right? Is that opening up that dialogue, the ability to get the information in different ways. And for some folks, when you're creating a personality, they might want a very proper you know, individual in reaction saying, this is what it is and very fact-driven. Others need that therapy session. You know, just mentioned, you know, in some of the physicians she spoke to in Europe, they act as part therapist and part physician, you know, physician. And so they, maybe they need that experience to be able to open up. So if you can figure out, provide that personalized care to everyone, then you can change how they interact. So it's no longer just this, you know, specific robotic, hi, hi, how are you? How are you? Type of thing. Feeling like you're going through a script. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's, I think that's, you know, their potential. And part of that's going to come from technologies like digital therapeutics that are able to take in, you know, sensors from patients in their homes and then be able to provide the system with information, being able to provide um, other like combinations of technologies. And I want to turn to Jess and provide some ideas on that. But like there is this ecosystem of technologies, which is can help with diagnosis and sustainable care, which can then you have this front end to bring it together in a more um, interactive way. And there's no other better way also to build trust than data and evidence and studies. And just that's what the Digital Therapeutics Alliance is doing. You've said this many times, you know, we need to get really clear on what a digital therapeutic is and what it is not. And it's not just those apps that are in an app store. The, as far as conducting studies and building the evidence and putting that regulatory framework around it, what are some of the things that, what are the next steps? Because you've laid the foundation, it's, it's there, but what are the things that we need to, to be doing next? Is it building more therapeutic, I mean, digital therapeutics, but what's going to help to build our trust in digital therapeutics? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, it, it's building an evidence base that is indisputable. So we maintain that, you know, randomized controlled trials are still the gold standard. So we follow the pharma trust model, essentially. And now countries, there's a question in the chat actually asking whether providers are actually prescribing and whether these kinds of products are reimbursable. And they are. So, and it's based Germany on just recently, yeah. Germany last year came up with national legislation reimbursing these kinds of products. And, you know, it's based on the fact that there is a body of evidence and that, you know, they are actually accepting now pragmatic trials and real world evidence, but, you know, with some built in caution there to say, okay, we need to see substantial numbers and, and to understand what really works. But it's, you know, I think it's just building standards that we all agree upon that this is a trustworthy product internationally. And, you know, we're seeing that trend already. So. Right. 
Keep going. I think the more people who have A, an awareness, B, a facility and capacity and comfort with it, that's really how we're going to learn together and to grow this much, much, much needed space because we're not going to create, I mean, you can create digital humans a lot more quickly than we can create physical humans, you know, (laughs) biology, you know, the computer science is on that side, not the biology. So I just want to thank both of you guys so much for your information, the work that you're doing, the hoops that you've had to jump through to join us today and to share this great information. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go next to actually take a look at how we're putting digital data, software, and compassionate scientists to work. And so in our next segment, we're going to see an example of how OrthoGrid is helping to make surgery much safer navigating all of that. And like I said, the magics of digital data and compassionate scientists. So again, thank you guys so much. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast. Podcast.